It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week I am thrilled to be introducing you to the Stimpunks Foundation. We'll be speaking with Stimpunks co-founder and creative director, Ryan Boren, and executive director, Chelsea Adams. Not only to learn about the Stimpunks Foundation, but also to hear about Chelsea and Ryan's own major pains. The Stimpunks Foundation is supporting neurodivergent and disabled individuals directly. And that includes just giving people cash. Sometimes people in our community run into access issues or financial barriers because of our ableist society. And the Stimpunks are helping people to overcome those barriers. We'll also hear about how the Stimpunks are building their website as a direct resource combing through the latest research and publishing it on their website to make it accessible, and even building a glossary of vocabulary that is relevant to the disabled and neurodivergent community. The Stimpunks are founded on four pillars. Mutual aid, including direct giving, creating a learning space for anti-ableist education, creator grants, and supporting research efforts. And of course, this podcast is the recipient of a Stimpunks creator grant. This grant is one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me as the creator of this podcast, the single largest direct support I've ever received to create this show. So I'm a personal witness and recipient of the incredible work that the Stimpunks are doing. The Stimpunks are not only supporting our community, they are also members of our community. Ryan calls himself a chronic constellation, and he'll tell us about his medical journey that has involved benign fasciculation syndrome neuromyotonia, and stiff person syndrome. These are all diagnoses that we haven't talked about on the show before, so I was really interested to learn about that from Ryan. And Chelsea will tell us about her struggles with a TBI, traumatic brain injury, migraines, mental health challenges, and body pain, while also exploring her own neurodivergence. It's a really fun episode. I learned so much. I'm so grateful to the Stimpunks of course, for my own creator grant and for them coming on the show so that we could highlight the incredible, important work that they're doing. I'm thrilled to bring you this episode. We'll get to it in just a couple minutes. In some personal news, I took a big step over the last couple weeks in my chronic illness journey. This is something that I've talked about a little bit over the years of this podcast, that part of my journey involves seeing a naturopath who filled me with a lot of hope that he would be able to heal me from my chronic illness and that I'd be able to go back to life as it was before. And over the course of being under his treatment, I just got worse and worse and eventually had to cut the cord. And it ended up being a fairly traumatic experience for me. Of course, cutting that cord is what brought me to UW Medical Center, University of Washington here in Seattle. And that is where I found a diagnosis, not just for mast cell activation syndrome, but also confirming that I have small fiber neuropathy after doing a skin biopsy. And that has opened up all of these treatment options, and I'm starting to improve. I'm still seeing that improvement. I'm trying to find the balance of learning to live with this disease, which is very complicated and very much an up and down experience. But I'm doing so much better than I was before getting this diagnosis, and it's been really thrilling. But I've still kind of held on to these feelings of, I guess, anger and disappointment and frustration over what happened with this naturopath. Something I've hinted at in the past is that once I finally get a diagnosis, I want to start reaching out to some of the healthcare practitioners that I've dealt with in the past and write them letters, let them know that I'd found a diagnosis, tell them, you know, 
in the future when you're dealing with people like me, here's one more thing to put in the back of your mind, mast cell activation syndrome and its relation to small fiber neuropathy. And you know, I have so many doctors that just weren't able to figure me out. (laughs) So many people that I wanted to reach out to in one way or another, but this naturopath was the one that I felt the strongest about, you know, having some trauma around the experience. So I finally sat down to write him a letter and it ended up being a real long email. And as I was writing it, all of this anxiety was coming up and all these feelings that I hadn't been thinking about for a long time were like really bubbling to the surface. And I basically sort of outlined the main aspects of his treatment that I wished were a little bit different. You know, specifically, he had really encouraged me to stay away from traditional Western medicine and just to be under his care. I was between hospitals at that point. I had no Western medicine doctor at that point. And he sort of encouraged me to just put myself in his hands and give up on this idea of finding a diagnosis and just let him treat me and his treatment would work. So I shared with him in the email that I really wish that he had encouraged me to pursue multiple avenues at once. His belief in his methods was infectious. And at first I really trusted him and believed in him for a long time. And it took me a long time to admit it wasn't working. And I really wish that he had been more forthcoming when things weren't working You know, something he would say a lot was that he would need to make me worse before I could get better. His treatment would change every month, and some months I would do pretty well. And he would say, oh, well, yeah, that's the treatment working. You're making progress. Other months I would do really poorly. And he would say, well, I need to make you worse before you can get better. So no matter what happened, it was a sign of his treatment working. And after a while, that started to feel uh, untrue to me. And I was so nervous sending him this email, but once I hit send... There was this huge relief, this huge feeling of closure over something that I really needed closure over. But what I did not expect was to hear back from him a few days later with a very gracious email thanking me for the feedback, telling me that he's always looking to improve as a practitioner and that having this honest feedback from a former patient was really valuable. And I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. That's the last thing that I expected to hear. I I didn't expect to hear from him at all. Or maybe he would write back and, you know, maybe push back at what I was sharing with him. But it was the absolute opposite. He was so gracious and he was genuinely interested to hear in how I'd been doing. And he wanted to hear this information from me so that he could assimilate it into his practice. So we ended up writing back and forth a few times and I shared with him how I'd been doing, what I've been trying that's been working and things that I've been looking towards in the future. And I got this like extra layer of closure, this layer of kind of feeling a lightness about letting go of this whole chapter in my life without animosity, without the anger, and just kind of feeling like I was on good terms with this man, which is amazing. And he actually gave me a little piece of info that I'll share with you that I think could be relevant to this community, especially those of us who live with chronic pain. Something we've covered on this podcast, uh, most specifically in Simon's episode about myalgic encephalomyelitis, is LDN, low-dose naltrexone. Naltrexone in high doses is used to help treat people with opioid addictions, but at low doses, there is evidence that it might help reset the immune system for people dealing with long-term chronic illness like myalgic encephalomyelitis. Simon's story of using it on the podcast is Uh, One of our most incredible episodes, the way he described falling into the depths of chronic fatigue syndrome and then starting LDN, starting low-dose naltrexone and slowly clawing his way back out into full recovery is 
absolutely riveting, but it really piqued my interest about LDN. And I've done some research about it. I've read that it can be helpful to some people with mast cell activation syndrome. And it's something that's been on my list of things to try for a while. And I did mention that to my old naturopath saying, hey, this is something I'm looking into in the future. And the only reason I haven't tried it yet is because I haven't been able to get it. I've been trying to get it prescribed, and it's real tricky. It's something that a lot of doctors aren't familiar with, don't know how to prescribe at the low dose that is required. I actually found a website that reminds me so much of, you know, medicinal cannabis from the old days before weed was legalized anywhere. There were dispensaries where you could go and talk to a doctor who would give you a prescription, and then you'd be able to get cannabis from a dispensary. And that's what I'm seeing online for LDN now, where you talk to a doctor via telehealth online and they prescribe you LDN and then you get it shipped to your house. That's the only method that I have seen where I might be able to get it. And I just haven't done it yet because it felt a little strange. But my naturopath mentioned that there is a herb called Corydalis, C-O-R-Y-D-A-L-I-S. I think it's actually a flower from a plant species that is actually related to poppies, which is where opium is derived from and opiates are derived from. And he essentially said that this herb, Corydalis, might do a similar thing to LDN, low-dose naltrexone. I have no idea if this is true. I have absolutely no idea. I started doing some research. I did find people talking about Corydalis as an herbal remedy for chronic pain. And I was shocked because I thought that I knew about all the herbal remedies to chronic pain and, you know, anti-inflammatory properties. But this is one I'd never heard of. I just picked some up and I am trying it. I'm on day three. It's definitely too early to say if it is working. But, you know, I know a lot of us out there are always looking for something, anything to try. Having anything on deck to do next is really valuable as a chronic pain patient. He said that he has not seen great transformations with people with LDN in his personal practice, but that the theory is that it resets opioid signaling in the body, which has overlap with inflammation and immune function. And then he says a natural option for this is an herb called Corydalis, which seems to have more of an anti-pain effect than the LDN. So who knows? I don't know. My reading about Corydalis, I have learned that it is an herb that is used in Chinese medicine and has been for a long, long time. And there's also like hundreds of forms of this plant. So it seems like Corydalis is a rabbit hole in and of itself. I just went on Amazon and I found the one with the best reviews and I bought some, <laughs> which is how it seems like my whole life is run these days. But as with every episode of this podcast, I never know, you know, what's going to help anyone else. I can only share what helps me and what I'm trying too early to say if Corey Dallas helps me or not, but it's something new that I'm trying and something I'd never heard of, and I wanted to bring that to your attention. If you have experience with Corey Dallas, please reach out to me, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'm always looking for information to share with our audience. And of course, I just have to say, I hope this is not me falling under this naturopath spell yet again. I hope that this is, you know, me letting go of the past, moving forward in a positive way, gaining some information from this person who at one point was a massive, massive major part of my chronic illness journey, no longer is a part of that journey. But if this information that is helpful comes from him, I just feel like that is a great end to this story that could have ended so much differently. And I'm so grateful that he was so gracious in receiving my feedback. And now I feel real good about moving forward into the future. This episode of Major Pain is made possible through the support of our listeners on Patreon. If you are enjoying this podcast, if it is a part of your weekly routine, I would love for you to check out our campaign on Patreon. You can sign up for monthly financial contributions, which directly support the creation of this show. There are three tiers of support, 
$2 per month supporter, $7 per month patron, and $25 per month producer. Extra special thank you to our producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your continued support is amazing. Everyone who supports the show on Patreon gains access to our monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. And there are also different tiers of special recognition and gifts that you can receive when you sign up. This is one of the absolute best ways to support the podcast. I hope you'll check it out. Patreon.com slash Major Pain Podcast. And of course, this episode is also made possible through a creator grant from the Stimpunks Foundation, who we will hear from in just a few minutes. Another great way to support this podcast and support the chronic illness and disability community is to check out Rare Patient Voice. If you have a diagnosis of any kind, you can sign up with Rare Patient Voice to participate in research studies and surveys where you will be paid an average of $120 per hour for your time. If you use our affiliate link when you sign up, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, then you'll also be supporting this show while you sign up. It's an awesome program. I hope you'll check it out. Don't forget to follow Major Pain on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Major Pain Podcast. Leave us a positive rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with a friend if you are enjoying this content. As always, I'll remind you that my guests and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor, including trying Corey Dallas. <laughs> and with that, we'll jump into our fantastic episode with the Stimpunks, Ryan and Chelsea, to learn about their organization and their individual major pains. Chelsea and Ryan from the STEM Punks organization, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jesse. Hello, thanks for having us. I'm so excited to have you both here. Finally, it's amazing to get to talk to you in real time. You know, we just talked about this before we started recording, but I want to say it again on the record how incredibly appreciative I am for the creator grant from the STEM Punks Foundation. It is the single largest support that I've ever received for creating this show a huge vote of confidence for the show. It's been tremendously helpful in my life. I mean, really life-changing. To feel that type of support has been really transformational for me, and I can't thank you all enough. Well, we're honestly truly glad to be here and be able to support creators like you. People that are part of the community, helping build the community up and really just make it a better place. It's We're very thankful to have you in our crew. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really excited to get to know you both, not just for your work in the Stimpunks today, but also as people. And let's start there. Let's get to know you both a little bit. So, uh, Chelsea, let's start with you. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Yeah, I'll take it away. My name is Chelsea Adams. I am born and raised in Texas, but currently living in the Denver area in Colorado. I am the executive director of Stimpunks Foundation. And I I don't know, I have a pretty interesting life background. It could probably take up this entire podcast, so I'll be pretty <laughs> short with it. But I was a medic in the military, in the Army, spent five years doing that. Really, even before that, in my younger years, I've always wanted to help people. And I worked a lot with disability communities in my younger years. and. I didn't realize for a while that I was a part of that. Mm. It took me getting out of the military, kind of 
bouncing around to a few different jobs, varying from working at a hospital to working construction to then being respite care for the Borens, who are the family I currently work for, and then finding STEM punks. And they were like, hey, do you want to be a part of this? And I looked at Ryan one day and Ina and was like, heck yeah, I want to be a part of this. Let's do this. Let's grow a community of disabled, neurodivergent, autistic people, make a safe space and research and put actual good things out there that are anti-ableist because that's a big thing for us to get away from ableism and realize that these people in this community, our community can do great things and they are doing great things. So just to highlight that, yeah, I live with my wife and my dog in Colorado currently, and we're basically trying to build and expand Stimpunks any way that we can. So take it not just in Texas, not just virtual, but bring it to other states. I know there's a lot of rambling I did there, but <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was great. Um, and Ryan, how about you? Let's get to know you a little bit. Well, I'm I'm coming at you at the moment from uh, Dripping Springs, Texas. It's named after a gathering place of the Tonkawa people who were here before us, and it's a little west of Austin. We call ourselves a little west of weird. Our families struggle for inclusion into education and other systems is rooted here, and is kind of what led to Stimpunks. Simpunks was born in the fight for survival and educational inclusion for our family and others who would gather around us locally and online. We uh, were big into joining online communities, and it's been quite a ride seeing advocacy bloom like it has over the past 10, 15 years. How many people are all over various platforms like TikTok, but not really cool stuff that I'm uh, happy to be a part of. I have seen that as well, this this blossoming of advocacy work and it's really i think the advent of social media that's made that possible and it's been a really exciting thing to witness when i first mm -hmm. got on tiktok i was shocked how much advocacy i was seeing people talking about you know rare diseases chronic illness disability unique lived experiences spreading empathy awareness i'm like wow this is what social media should have been all about all along but it really feels like tiktok kind of kickstarted a lot of that which is now spread to other platforms yeah, TikTok's been huge in spreading monotropism and the monotropism questionnaire. I help out in my small way, advocating monotropism in community and helping develop it as a as a theory. What what is monotropism? So it's a tendency to attention tunnel. It's very relatable to many autistic people, but also some ADHD people. I pulled up a, a better better definition, one from Fergus Murray, whose mother, Dina Murray, originated the theory of monotropism and Fergus has been caretaker, custodian, and advocate for it since. Fergus says, monotropism is the tendency for our interest to pull us in more strongly than most people. It rests on a model of the mind as an interest system. And lots of people, and both autistic and ADHD, but not entirely, we don't want to invalidate anyone who doesn't, doesn't align with monotropism, but it seems to be a, a, a lot of currency in both autistic and ADHD communities. And explain things like hyper-focus and special interests and autistic inertia and other things we talk about in the community. Mm. There's good things with it, like my, my monotropic tendencies are why I have a, had a career in tech. It allowed me to 
attention tunnel on these things for long periods of time and make a living doing that. But it can also lead to your attention just kind of gets drawn into one thing and then your flow states get blocked. Flow state's another term we need to to define if we get into this dis- discussion. <laughs> the monotropism questionnaire published like a couple of years ago, but just recently, like in the last few months, I noticed on TikTok and blew up and it's it's been cool because someone created an auto scoring version for it you know everyone came together and lots of it happened in a discord server and it was just cool seeing tiktok influence the original researchers which gave fit- feedback to the people on tiktok doing the advocacy saying here's some ways to communicate this better and that's that's more scientific and doesn't overclaim what the monotropism questionnaire is and some cool teamwork moments bringing monotropism to a mass audience that was spawned by just a explosive day on TikTok. Wow. Interesting. Another interesting thing with monotropism, Ryan and I were just discussing yesterday, I think there's been a little pushback, not in a bad way, but people who are also in the neurodivergent movement are like, Hey, this actually doesn't fully like work or align with my brain. Right. So we talked about it a bit yesterday and we're like, it's interesting, right? Of, you know, for some people, the monotropic standpoint in mind really makes sense. And then for other people, um, what were you talking about, Ryan? The monotropism block. So basically, instead of getting into these steady workflows and being able to push forward, you have a block of some kind. And I can relate to that. It's something that in research has been called clumping and it's, and others have called monotropic spiral. But uh, I maybe a good way to summarize this up real quick is to invite people to take the monotropism questionnaire. Hmm. Um, if you just type monotropism questionnaire in Google or any other search engine, you'll get, you'll get legit hits. That's all people who are involved with formulating the theory and testing it in this recent study. And uh, you can also go to stempunks.org slash monotropism dash questionnaire that'll show up in the search engines if you just want to do it that way and take the monotropism questionnaire and see if it fits you and it'll give you it'll give you this little blurb at the end after after it scores your questionnaire saying compared to the study participants you're you're more monotropic than 98 percent of autistic people and x percent of of non-autistic people and so then you can do with that what you will. And we actually have on our monotropism questionnaire page places to go after you take the questionnaire to answer your questions and say, what do I do with this information? Yeah, very interesting. This conversation is reminding me a little bit of my time in music school studying music theory, where, you know, Bach and Beethoven would take these leaps of music theory and sort of create music that was in some ways outside of traditional theory. But then years later, music researchers would sort of study what they had done and realize why it worked within music theory and sort of apply new rules or uh, create an understanding around what some people were doing instinctually. Music is something that sort of makes sense to our pattern eater brains. But the question is why? Some researchers will come along and try to answer those questions to define something that's sort of esoteric and ethereal and put some terms on it to help us understand it. 
And when we're talking about the way that our brains work and the way that we process information, there are a lot of paradigms that are sort of common that don't fit everybody. And I think that a lot of people whose brains function in a different way oftentimes feel left out or feel unseen. So applying new theories to to the way that brains work and the way that we process information. And if that registers with someone, it's like, oh, that's me. That's how my brain works. It can just be really validating to see that you're not alone in the way that you process information, which is just a foundational part of how we exist in the world. And a big part of what we do is collect and mine vocabulary or describing ourselves. And we've mentioned some things already like clumping, which we have at stimpunks.org slash glossary slash clumping. You will find our glossary page on clumping, which excerpts relevant research and, and community discussion, and even has like some videos and maybe some music. That's what we do with our vocabulary pages. We kind of start with a simple, plain language as we can definition at the top, and then start adding in, as you scroll down the page, research, which you can get really wonky in language using specialist language. But then we also mix it in with some TikTok videos or some YouTube videos that we like that explain it and then end up with like a like a music from some neurodivergent band that has something relevant to say. Mm. And that's what we, we kind of do with all of our vocabulary pages. So if you go to stempunks.org slash glossary, you can get uh, definitions for most of the terms we're using. These are all kind of like you were talking about with music theory. This new language we're experimenting with to see who relates to it, who it resonates with. And we're lifting things out of research, like uh, clumping comes from one of Damian Milton's studies. Damian Milton's famous for the double empathy problem. He's done some things on attention clumping and monotropic attention channels. And it's it's kind of wonky and whatnot, but we, we pull that out and mix it with the other stuff and try to give people a broad and deep definition of something that includes community voice as well as deep research and studies. A lot of research is, is behind paywalls. You have to have institutional access via your university or something like that, or you have to pay a la carte, sometimes 50 bucks a pop for these studies. And so part of what Simmonks is, does is we pay for those studies, mine it for relevant quotes, synthesize it with other stuff in our glossary pages on our, and elsewhere on our website. Mm. And we have a searchable resource Break the walls down, make it accessible to everyone who wants to see it. We have people who've reached out from Germany, from Korea, from all these different countries that are English speaking, and they want to help us translate these terms that are kind of really hard to translate and mm. sometimes untranslatable, right? How do you spread this movement in certain terms and things with neurodivergence, disability, and autism? How do you make it worldwide? We're finding the hard walls that are hitting that because mm. a lot of it is language. Language barriers are huge. Um, but we have people from different countries that have reached out to us wanting to help us translate these things because I don't speak German, um, not fluently. So we have someone helping us do that. Um, same with any other language, you know. So I think it's pretty, I guess I'll say honestly, just flat out badass <laughs> that we have people from other countries that are like, hey, heck yeah, I am this, I'm part of your community, how do we expand it? 
but we're also at the same time a very small crew of people doing a lot of things. So that's something that's been a hard aspect is, okay, what's our limits? What can we actually do and commit to and not overexpend ourselves, burn ourselves out, you know, because we are the community doing this. (laughs) (laughs) All of us are neurodivergent, disabled, autistic in some way, not all of the above, but in different forms. So I don't know. I think it's pretty awesome that we have a crew that we are the community doing the things, but it is also very exhausting. That's something that's been a struggle for me with my mental health and things from being a military veteran and then also being very neurodivergent. And I look back on so many aspects of my life that I'm like, all right, I probably could have been better there. But every day for me anyway, is a new day of new discovery of things about myself Mm. and how to be better, not even for the people around me, but for myself. Yeah. I'm someone who very much focuses on other people and taking care of other people. So bringing that energy into myself and taking care of myself is hard. That's something I struggle with. Ryan knows we talk about it very often, but I'm very thankful that I have colleagues and workers that are like, hey, or coworkers that are like, hey, we get this. We got you. Ebb and flow with things. But most people don't have that. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important to be in touch with that for yourself. your individual needs and when to ask for help and when to lean on other people, especially because we live in a society that it sort of expects you to never do that. But that is sort of a shifting paradigm right now, which is really exciting. Um, Well, I know that you both have your own major pains, which I really want to hear about. But before we get to that, you know, we've already talked about some of the specific things that you can find on the Stimpunk's website, making this information and the research accessible, that's so huge and so cool. Uh, but let's get basic for a second and talk about what what is the basics of the Stimpunks organization? What is your mission statement? First of all, I think our, our, our one-liner is we exist for the direct support and mo- mutual aid of neurodivergent and disabled people. And that in direct supporting includes just giving you cash that's one of the best things you can do to help someone just give them some money to make their own decisions to make their life what they need it to be i think that's been shown in several studies now that that have been conducted across the pandemic and whatnot that direct assistance is one of the best ways to help people out and so we try to reduce the administrative burden that is heaped upon people in our systems it is ridiculous to get aid almost anywhere we make our application process as neurodivergent and disabled friendly as you can you we know what it's like to fill these forms out when you're barely getting by you're you're struggling with executive function you're ill you're sick you're disoriented you know i've experienced all that while i've been trying to fill out forms and so we try to make it as lightweight as we can while still being compliant with applicable laws and and ethics yeah that's what we're mainly about we have four pillars, as we call them. One of them is the mutual aid, which includes direct giving. Um, then we have our, our learning space where we where we advocate for anti-ableist education, 
compatible with neurodiversity and social model disability. And um, we are very active in progressive education spaces because after all of our years of searching, that's what was most aligned with us as neurodivergent disabled people. We're trying to develop a formula for this learning space that people can use online and in their local communities and physical spaces. In our neighborhood here in Dripping Springs, Texas, we currently have a, several venues. We try to move our learning space between right now while we look for permanent facilities because it's hard to find something that's appropriate to our community. There's so little accessible stock in the housing, retail, commercial, otherwise it's it's pretty dreary. And the stuff that fits us best is wildly expensive. But anyway, we're we're looking for ways to actualize everything in, in physical spaces. The third is the creator grant aspect, which is is what we did with a uh, major pain. We invited people to to apply for it, and we got so many wonderful applications. It was heartening to see all the cool stuff that's happening in our communities. It was really a wonder to behold, and it was really, really hard to pick one person. Mm. Fortunately, we have enough money for two creative grants at the end of this year. So oh, wow. for folks who have something they want funding for, you can hit us up at stempunks.org slash creator. And then uh, what's our what's our fourth what's our fourth pillar, Chelsea? Um, research. Yes, as what we talked about earlier. We, we tried Lots to of research. We tried to bring voice into empirical constructs. A voice is treated as something to dismiss so much in autism research. That's why uh, folks in our community have said that autism research is built on a foundation of sand because no one's been listening. We want to change that. We want to bring voice into academic constructs and academic comprehension. And we outline our, our advocacy for that on stempunks.org slash research. Then we talk about participatory research, emancipatory research, activist research, and why we support those efforts. And we also list current studies that we recommend joining that are being done in an ethical manner by and with autistic people or, or ADHD, whatever the study may be. That's our four. Wow. Yes, I feel like we're doing great work, but it feels like we're fighting out of the trenches to help everyone we're helping, right? And how to get out of that to be able to help more people, that's really been in my opinion the the biggest struggle of the next step like how do we make this big enough how do we get in grants and these type of things where we can help more people because mm. a lot of the orgs and stuff doing similar work quote unquote as us are getting the grant money but they're not giving it to the people who need direct support if that makes sense this weird spot we're in right now yeah you know when i was researching your organization looking through your website what really stuck out to me is the fact that you are supporting individuals directly you know ryan you just touched on that as well you know the research around just giving some people some money sometimes is the best way that you can support them when they are stuck in these places you know mm -hmm. where the world is just not set up or aligned with the way that your body or your mind works which is so unfair because every human life deserves respect and decency and deserves to have equal opportunity to flourish in society. And sometimes society works against people. So to try to step in and fill in those gaps is so admirable. And Ryan, what you were saying about making the forms accessible, 
when you're talking about you know you know what it's like to have the brain fog and to try to fill out a form and fill out horrible long forms that are too much i I got choked up hearing about that i'm typically the person who's like processing the forms and things and we've had people who you know they're like hey we're having trouble accessing your form because it's popping up this of like captcha basically trying to anti-spam stuff Mm -hmm. so i'll sit with someone and be like hey how can we get this done let me turn this off did your form go through and even that experience people have told me like no one has done that for them in any other organization yeah where they've been like hey actually i want to figure this out with you I got this. And they're like, wait, you're also the executive director and you're the human (laughs) talking to me. But I feel that way very much where I'm like, wait, I'm just this human. I'm just trying to help you. Like my role, what it says I am in the nonprofit is unimportant to me. Hmm. It's what's important is taking care of the human that's on the other side of that. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like it's definitely been reciprocated. Like, very many people that we've granted or not even granted, but we've just talked to, I've gone back and forth with them and they're like, Hey, I love what y'all are doing. I want to be a part of this, even if you can grant me money or not. Right. And that to me is what's beautiful. It's like these people already that are struggling, having the hardest time of their life, still want to be a part of this community and build it up. Mm. To me, that's just beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of. And I don't know, It's we have people who volunteer for us that are homeless. Wow. They're homeless, but they're still doing what they can because they're so passionate about being a part of it, right? So I don't know, that passion just reciprocates through everybody involved, in my opinion. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. What What is the history of your organization? When did it start? And uh, how has it grown since then? We kind of started in COVID, basically. Really? Like, right. Yeah. Basically, when COVID was really big happening. <laughs> Um, I think the big official startup was 2021, but it kind of work was being done before that, if that makes sense. We had a Stempunks LLC, a limited library corporation for a short period of time while we're trying to get the foundation set up and established with the IRS. We did some giving through Stempunks LLC. And then before that, we did some giving as a, as a family, my own family, we kind of got into doing mutual aid support on Twitter and elsewhere, helping helping people who are just asking in the simplest way. And was like, all right, here, we'll help you. And we started, got started like that and turned it into an LLC and then into a foundation. For a while, we're going to keep the LLC to do more uh, political oriented stuff because since we're uh, in the US, if you're a 5013C, you're not allowed to lobby the government. There's some other restrictions. So we were thinking about the LLC being like the kind of lobbying advocacy, disability rights, disability justice arm, but we just didn't have the energy to keep it going. So we now just focus on the foundation and stay within its limits in the U.S. Which can be very frustrating. The limits. Yeah, when you're, when you're working with tax-free money, you have to worry about quid pro quo. You have to worry about 
self-dealing if you got to avoid things that look like that but it can get in the way of helping community mm. because you know at what point does someone you know become friends and family that you can't give to and so we've kind of run into some of that stuff and we're always asking our advisors and our lawyers what can we do what's the limit how do we avoid quid pro quo while still supporting our community because we want to push the limits as big as we can because yeah. nobody else is doing it to be well, honest yeah one thing we've heard from our advisors and lawyers is that we're pretty unique no one else is doing what we're doing in part because it's it's a pain in the ass legally <laughs> it's a lot yeah run a, to, to run an operating nonprofit foundation that does direct giving is no joke hmm. it takes some doing and we're constantly consulting consultants who eat into our funds unfortunately but we need to make sure we do this legit within the irs rules and other rules so that we can keep on keep on doing this yeah but yeah the learning curve has been immense and it's been part of part of our you, you mentioned growth we have grown quite a bit over the last several years especially in our digital outreach we're getting lots more traffic to our website getting thousands of views a day hmm. some of our most popular posts like uh the five neurodivergent love locutions that's been love languages i know what you I, mean. <laughs> I, I can get a thousand views a day a couple thousand and it's it's that's one of my favorite posts because it's just it's a fun listicle that's very palatable, but it, it introduces you to some core concepts that really do make neurodivergent collaboration and neurodivergent teamwork more accessible and understandable. Mm. That growth online has been great. We haven't been focused on fundraising so far. We uh, we have our initial endowment that we're going to operate on for a few years. We can operate on that without having to raise any extra funds, but we want to start getting more serious about fundraising and to grow grow ourselves in that way mm -hmm. but so far we've just been focused on serving the community mutual aid creator grants doing our research growing our website as a repository of information and a, and a destination for communities to go understand itself and uh, also we just like to give resources for people to fight back so a lot of we get people contact us saying i used it in my iep meeting at school for my kids individualized education program because they're neurodivergent i use that to advocate for their needs i use this piece and our court case that helped our family navigate custody because of neurodiversity related issues wow. so when you see people coming back saying how they use those resources it just uh, makes me realize how how important it is to have that kind of community mm. gloss and and so that people can say i'm not the only one look there's this community that talks like this and here's what they have to say about this and it's backed by deep research that's linked everywhere we signpost to everyone in our community who's who's written stuff so that you can go to the sources to keep it on the theme of growth that's all grown grown a lot but we're we need to work on is fundraising so that we can do more and have to say no less because saying no really hurts mm -hmm. it's uh big time especially in the mutual aid pipeline just to give a general number we give four mutual aid grants a month at five hundred dollars we currently have 54 people in our pipeline yeah it seems like a small number but when you're having to choose life or death for some people type of thing it's it's tough and then our creator grant pipeline which we only do three a year typically but this year we are doing four 
we have 56 creator grants in our pipeline. So there's very much a need of, in my opinion, of giving grant money to neurodivergent disabled creators because these people can go and run with it. I mean, look at you, Jesse, <laughs> like <laughs> you're doing great things. And the fact that we were able to help you out and elevate yourself and move forward and do good things for the community is really awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's so deeply meaningful to me. And just hearing about the other people applying, I'm even more honored to be the the recipient of this grant. Thank you so much. I really want to hear about your major pains, because I know from experience and from so many people that I've interviewed who do advocacy work, once you live through something, you realize why we need advocacy. <laughs> when you live with a chronic illness, a disability, when you are neurodivergent, you often run into these barriers that, that other people don't experience. And that's why we get into this type of work. Ryan, let's start with you. Ryan, what is your major pain? Oh, there's so many though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a chronic constellation, uh, all in one. So, um, my main one is uh, stiff person syndrome, which got some attention a couple of years ago when uh, Celine Dion, the famous singer, came out with her diagnosis mm -hmm. and some of what she goes through. And that was nice because most people, even doctors, have never heard of stiff person syndrome or neuromyotonia or peripheral nerve hyperreactivity disorders in general. It's a zebra among zebras in many ways it's hard to get a diagnosis for it. I would, it's been 12 years and I still like don't have full definitive diagnosis for everything because it's because you don't test for this like one neuromyotonia indicator, which is a muscle spasming disease that is very similar to stiff person syndrome, you know, for, I've been trying to isolate what exactly it is I have over years. And, and it, it just it took like 12, 13 years. I can't remember yeah. to get my diagnoses. And a lot of that was spent in diagnosis by exclusion, mm. where you just go through the first, you know, I had, I was presenting like I had ALS because I have fasciculations all over my body. My muscles boil with these little, what's called bag of worms effect that led us to the ALS diagnostic regime. And then I wasn't developing the way ALS patients used to develop. So they're like, we don't think that's it. So we go on to start testing for sarcoidosis and other things and increasingly rarer and rarer and rarer things. And then we get into, you know, cramp fasciculation syndrome. That's part of my journey. We called it that, which is also called benign fasciculation syndrome, which is an insult because it's not benign. It hurts. <laughs> yeah. All these are, if I'm remembering my vocabulary correctly, peripheral nerve hyperactivity diseases and, uh, it's been 13 years, so I start to forget like the details of my sure. diagnoses and, <laughs> yeah. and everything else. But um, right now, I just say stiff person syndrome. My every voluntary muscle in my body cramps chronically, oh. and you know, from my arches of my feet to the tongue and my jaw, I have wow. to be careful when I eat because I'll, I'll chewing can trigger cramps, and if I'm in the middle of swallowing, it gets dangerous. So, but mostly it it focuses on my torso. Um, my rib muscles cramp all the time. 
with the force to tear muscle, which I've torn intercostal muscles multiple times now. Mm. And others with the, others with the syndrome have broken bones, dislocated joints. I've dislocated my jaw, my jaw from a jaw cramp. That's my everyday. So when someone, if someone out there is has gotten a benign fasciculation syndrome diagnosis, it still hasn't gone all the way up to the neuromyotonia and whatnot. Just know that there's someone out out there that knows how not benign this is. Yeah, how much it hurts. Even if you don't emerge into full blown stiff person syndrome or neuromyotonia, just the just the earlier forms that the doctors call benign fasciculation syndrome were agonizing. I was like, you got to find a different name. Yeah, <laughs> just because benign because it's not going to immediately kill you. Yeah, but some days you're going to wish it did because it's just it is quite agonizing. It's my claim to knowing agony. Yeah, I can get uh, cramps that like start in my jaw and then go down in my neck, down in my arms, travel through my chest into my abdominals, into my hip flexors, into my groin, into my testicles, down my legs. I'm pretty much locked in agony. And if I try to like extend a leg to work the cramp out of one muscle, the opposing muscle starts to cramp. So I'm just locked in this rigor. And if you want to know what the worst muscle to cramp on your entire body is, in my opinion, it's the sartorius, which is a long muscle that goes from the abdomen down and down through the hip flexors into the quads. And it's the longest muscle in your body. And when it cramps, it's obvious how long that muscle is. Wow. And yeah. that's the same one that runs in with sciatica. Which mm. Yeah, I think it traverses some of that territory. That's uh, a major issue I struggle with. Ryan, do you know anything about the mechanism of what causes this in the body? Is this considered a neurological disease? Is there a deficiency yeah. of some kind that causes these cramps? It's mainly been neurologists who have been treating me. But it's one of those, it's got, it could be, and anti-inflammatory response it could be to do with the sodium ion channels and and the nerve synapses but it's it's so rare and understudied that mm -hmm. nobody really knows and the test for it or like it might, it'll test like one specific thing that's been slightly associated with this thing so there's no like there's no definitive test so you're left hanging out in diagnostic limbo for decades before yeah. someone will pin it with the with the diagnosis and the medical system doesn't realize how important a diagnosis can be mm. not just getting services but to identity saying mm. you know where do i belong who are my people because right now i hang out with you know i've been long before i got diagnosed i was like hanging out in stiff person syndrome forms and whatnot because that's what i related to most mm -hmm. that's the folks who who i felt understood best what i went through and so i was glad later when my diagnostic adventure went into neuromyotonia and step person syndrome territory because i'm going at last validation yeah totally i i couldn't relate to this more i mean what you're saying is so true as i'm also someone who searched for a diagnosis for you know really on and off my whole life but very intensely searched for over a decade i had so many doctors tell me to give up on finding a diagnosis that i was undiagnosable and for me, just that identity piece, I need to know what, what am I, you know, <laughs> and finally mm -hmm. getting that answer hit for me just this year has just been remarkably transformative, not just for finally having treatment that I can apply to myself that is working and I'm just doing so much better, but also to be able to say, when someone asks me what's going on, to be able to say, oh, 
I have this disease. Like that's so new to me still. And it's, it's really, really powerful and so important. Uh, and I know we could, I mean, we could do a whole hour talking about stiff person syndrome, I'm sure. Um, so, but I really appreciate you educating us a little bit about your disease. That's one we have not covered on the podcast before, but Chelsea, I'd love to hear from you as well. Chelsea, what is your major pain? My major pains are TBI from sports injuries, also the military. Mm, Traumatic brain injury. So having that combination with my struggle of mental health um, and then also learning all these parts about myself of neurodivergence have really been interesting for me and it's so a lot of things with tbi and certain stuff like i have sciatica i have certain body issues that i don't know it's i've talked to ryan a lot about it of connecting it to minor divergence in a way Hmm. i think some of it it does have a big play with each other But for me, being a woman, a lot of it, I'm 34 in my current life, it's mental health and it all plays back into my back and body issues. So it's been interesting because I've been going to a chiropractor. I know some people have their opinions on chiropractors, but for me, I tell them when I have a migraine coming on because I struggle very much with like deep migraines like migraines that knock me off my butt Mm. out of the day like can't function type of thing so when i have those knockout type of migraines i reciprocate that to my physical therapist and also my chiropractor and then they work my body i don't know for me it's been helpful very much to be on that same page with things. But I also understand that a lot of people don't have that option and that bums me out a lot, but it's for me, it's helped my migraines. I was basically having six knockout migraines a month before I started physical therapy, also chiropractor. And then I think I have massage therapy on as well right so that's like three things that i have to have in my life to help my migraines subside Mm. and without that i have big migraines and medication only goes so far yeah so it's interesting how i don't know how that plays in because my biggest struggle has been migraines and just like body pain yeah yeah and I'm a huge chiropractor advocate, uh, but I also recognize that, you know, I've seen a lot of chiropractors and the good ones just like transformationally helpful and the bad ones are either, you know, not helpful at all or even harmful. So it's so varied. It really is an art and you have to find the right practitioner. One of the first episodes we did on this podcast was, was with my old chiropractor who was, you know, a magician and he moved and I have not found someone since that has even close to being as good as him. And that does the same thing for you. And like, I can relate to that so hard because so moving from Texas to Colorado, I basically had 
four months that I just went without a chiropractor Mm -hmm. and I loved my chiropractor in Texas. But then I started going here and it's elevated the experience for me. Mm. And I think mainly because I'm a veteran and I was going to the VA for chiropractor at the time. Now they sent me out because they do this thing called community care. And so they sent me out to someone in the community and wow, the level of care is like a hundred percent better. Wow. Yeah. Um, Which is really depressing that that's like where it's at with the VA and stuff. And I even had this talk with my wife recently because she gets healthcare within her work, but that's been a recent thing for her. And she was like, we need to bring you into that. And I was like, oh, but I, you know, I get free healthcare from the VA, but it's shit healthcare (laughs) (laughs) to say the least. Um, Mm. It's great when it's great. And then it's not great when it's not. It's the basically the pushback of appointments. Like if they cancel one, you have to wait two more months to get in. Wow. And that's what's frustrating. Um, but I'm like, it's free healthcare. I've just dealt with this forever. So I'm just going to do it. My wife's like, no, no, <laughs> we're going to do better. So that's been a whole change in my like mindset and stuff of, okay, it's worth it to pay a little more to get better care. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, chiropractic and massage can be so incredibly valuable and are often not covered by insurance, or if they are, you get maybe 10 appointments a year. Uh, And when oftentimes that type of body work, you need to go once a week or once every other week to keep your body working the way you want to, especially if it's preventing migraines like you're talking about. But a common thread in both of your stories is access issues for trying to find the right practitioner, searching for a diagnosis for a mystery illness, doctors not even knowing about your disease, Like these types of access issues are so common and that's why it just makes so much sense that this is the work that you're doing, trying to help other people directly. You know, like if there's someone who can't afford chiropractic care and they're applying for a mutual aid to try to get, you know, out of pain, it's just so admirable that you're helping with the specific grassroots street level problems that people in our community are living with on a constant basis. So... It's so exciting to hear about your organization. I really appreciate learning a bit about both of you as people, about your history, as people living with major pains, but also the history of your organization. And just to wrap it it up today, please tell us where people can go to connect with the Stimpunks online. If someone wants to get involved in your organization, if people want to donate to support your organization, you know, what do we need to know as far as what to do next to get involved? Take it away, Ryan. You're the lead right. man. Well, if you go to stempunks.org, which is our, our website, we uh, we focus everything on our website. We make it a, a resource and a just a community playground. And at the top of every page of our website are three blue buttons. One says donate, one says volunteer, and one says get help. We encourage people to uh, click those as their interests suggest. If you... Uh, want to donate we could always use the money our pipelines are filling the more people donate the less we have to say no mm. and then our, our volunteer page our volunteer page is uh, loaded with information about us and our philosophy we like people to get an idea of who we are and what they're volunteering for 
we also talk about things like roles in social change and roles at STEM punks. So that's our stempunks.org slash volunteer page. Again, that's accessible from a button at the top of every page on our website. And then get help will take you to our request aid page. We focus on monetary aid, but we also just like, as Chelsea mentioned earlier, help with research, help however we, any non-monetary ways we can, because we only have so much money. And so we, we supplement that with our time by helping people research things in their area, connecting them with, with other communities and organizations when we can, and just, just trying to be helpful. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. I, I'm so impressed with what you're doing. If people out there have resources to donate, like Ryan just said, everyone who donates, you are directly supporting another person, someone else that Stimpunks can say yes to. I am just so appreciative for your organization, for you all sharing your time today. And the, for the fact that I am a creator grant recipient, yeah, that keeps this podcast going for months, which is so incredible. I want to do this forever, and I'm just trying to get creative in how I'm looking for ways to keep it supported. This was one of the first grants I applied to, and the fact that I got it, like I said, is life-changing and so, so deeply exciting. I am thrilled to be highlighting your organization today and to be directing people towards you, whether you are able to support the Stimpunks or you need support from the Stimpunks. We've learned a ton today about how to do both. Is there anything else that you want to plug or share? Any personal projects or social media that you'd like to direct us towards? Um, um, maybe the Eddie Ray-Ban fundraiser, Ryan. Yeah, we have, uh, we have an event coming up. It's, it's mainly serving our local Dripping Springs disability community, particularly artists and musicians. It's called Jingle All Our Ways. <laughs> and um, it's a benefit for disability community in the Dripping Springs area. So it's kind of it's kind of local to be plugged into a global audience. But um, if you want to check it out, you can see how we try to run events and get support for our folks. And you can go to stimpunks.org slash events and uh, see more there. It's called Jingle All Our Ways. It's a fundraiser for a band who has a great song called Love Is Everything that we put on our event page. It's a wonderful inclusion song that features non-speaking singers providing background vocals. And it's a, it's a beautiful song. I recommend people check it out. Go to stimbucks.org slash events. Awesome. Well, it's been amazing getting to meet you both today, to talk to you, hear about Stimpunks, and to hear about your personal stories. We covered a lot over the last hour, which I appreciate so much. Thank you both for sharing your time with us and for educating us about your incredible organization. Thank you Thank so you. much, Jesse. You rock. We're really... <laughs> Honestly, super stoked that you're one of our creator grantees and a part of this community. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. 
Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.